0: Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Byrd continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird, Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we continue our study of Romans this morning, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace your word. I pray that we would champion your word in a society that does not know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, as we continue our study of Romans in Romans chapter 15, we begin Paul's formal conclusion of his letter to the Romans. And I looked back as I was preparing my remarks and saw that we started this study of Romans nearly five years ago. And while we have the rest of chapters 15 and 16 to go, it reminded me of uh, Churchill's great quote when he was speaking to the citizens of the UK after the Allies first victory over the Germans. He didn't want them to become overly optimistic with the first victory in battle. And we've got that great Churchill line in which he said, now is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. So we're at the conclusion, but it's not the end. And let me begin as we start to study the conclusion of the letter I want to take just a brief moment and us turn to Romans chapter 1 as we look at the introduction, which we studied nearly five years ago. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who were in Rome... Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I pointed out as we went through chapter 1, that Paul addressed the letter to the believers of Rome. And you see that in this introduction, in Romans 1 5, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. The letter is written to the Christians, and most specifically the church in Rome. And if you go to Romans 15, our focal passage this morning, When Paul writes the letter, we went through the presentation of the gospel and then we went to the exhortation to apply the gospel, both us today living in the modern time, also there at the church in Rome. And after he does that, after he does the presentation of the gospel through the letter and then then practical application of the gospel, he starts his conclusion. And that's where we are this morning, Romans 15, verses 14 and 15. And this is what Paul says. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, is reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Now, the who in verse 14 is the church. Now, I myself am confident concerning you. Now you might say, well, no, he's writing to us individually, but the next phrase is my brethren. It's plural, correct? It's not singular. And so just as he opened the letter in Romans chapter 1 to the church, we have to remember that this letter is written to a church. And in fact, most of the Pauline epistles are written to the church collectively. And as I was studying these particular verses and I was thinking about that this letter was written to the church. In context of what Paul is trying to convey here in these verses, it made me think about this question. What is a church? What is a church? And unfortunately, we can say that in our modern time, that a great number of people look at this question on a very topical level. And in fact, you could make the argument that there are a great number of people that would define a church in in the same way that they would describe an auditorium. That church and auditorium are, interchangeable words. And in fact, if you look in the Oxford Dictionary on the definition of auditorium, they give you two. The first, the part of a theater, concert hall, or other public buildings in which the audience sits. And there's a lot of people that that's their definition of a church, that we come and... People sit and they listen and then they leave. And you really think about it, if that's all what they're thinking about, that that is an interchangeable word. That it's not Mill Creek Church, it's Mill Creek Auditorium. Another definition is a large building or hall used for public gatherings, typically speeches or stage performances. And so people their view, their topical view of a church is you come and you sit down in a pew or a chair and you listen. And the reason why I wanted to say that in this particular context, as Paul starts the conclusion of his letter, he goes through several descriptions that give a proper definition of a church and it is not coming into a building in sitting. At least it's not limited to that particular exercise. Let's look at our focal verse again. In verse 14, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. And I would argue that in verse 14, Paul gives us three attributes of a church that also make up the definition of a church. Now, there's many more, but for our purposes this morning, I want to look at these three things that Paul uses to describe the church at Rome. And I'm going to give you a hint They're not about building dimensions. They're not about architectural styles. And they're not about seating capacity. Because that's how people look at the modern view of the church. It is a place where you go. If you look at the first attribute, he tells the Roman church that they are full of goodness. Full of goodness. If you look at that in the original language, it comes from a word called agathos. And it's the same word that is used in Galatians chapter five, verse 22, which is the fruit of the spirit. Galatians five twenty-two it says, but the fruit of the spirit. In other words, the evidence of you being a Christian that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. There it is. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. That's the exact same word that he tells the Galatian church that the evidence of you being a believer, your fruit, because Christ tells us that if we are truly believers that we will bear fruit so that your evidence of being a Christian, goodness, and the word that Paul uses here to describe the Roman church, goodness, it's the exact same thing. So what is the definition? What is goodness in this particular sense? In this context, it means good moral qualities. In other words, holiness. Holiness, righteousness, moral living should be a characteristic of the church. Salvation isn't a license to sin. Salvation is a transformational process in which God declares us righteous, he moves us in righteousness, our sanctification, and in our glorification, we become righteous. So when he tells the church at Rome that you are full of goodness, they are living their life in a way that represents the truth of God. And it reminded me earlier of what Paul said in Romans 6, verse 1, when he posed the question, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer, of course, in verse 2 of Romans 6 was certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. There's that transformation. That by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of God changes us. And so if individually we are to walk in newness of life, If individually we have been transformed, then when we get together collectively as the church, the church should magnify the righteousness of God. The church should magnify the power of Christ. So as we come together, our goodness, which is found through Christ, becomes a witness. In fact, I would argue that one of the best testimonies that we could have is coming together and having pursued righteousness and holy living that together we have a cohesive single testimony for our communities. And unfortunately, you hear people say a lot, well, why should I want to go to church? There's a lot of hypocrites in there. And while that's been a, an excuse for years, unfortunately, as the church has preached a cheap grace, some of that sticks a little. Because churches have pursued this idea that you can profess the name of Jesus Christ and do whatever you want. But here in Paul's letter, he tells the church that they're full of goodness. In other words, they are pursuing righteousness. And it makes sense in the story of Christ. There is a story of Christ throughout the whole Bible. In fact, the Bible says that our name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world and all of Christ through the prophetic Verses that we find in the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, going through Revelation. There's that story of Jesus. W.A. Criswell preached this message that he titled, The Scarlet Thread of Redemption. That you see Christ throughout the whole Bible. And so Christ has a story, and when you think about your own salvation in the context of that story, it makes me think about Ephesians 5.25, which reads, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. That, this is really important, he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy in without blemish. Kind of puts the hole in the argument of cheap grace, doesn't it? What's the story of Jesus Christ? The story of Jesus Christ is that He came to save us individually, yes. But also collectively, we are His church. And collectively, we should represent His teachings and His truth as we pursue holiness. It's one of the attributes of the church. What's the second attribute? Well, let's go back to our focal passage. Romans 15 verse 14. You also are all full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Another attribute of the church is that the church is knowledgeable to his word and his doctrine. His word and his doctrine. You can see this in Second Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 14, it says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long suffering of the Lord is salvation. Also, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, Since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church should be a place of instruction. In other words, as you come into worship, we aren't here to make it a good time. We're here to study and learn and grow in the word of God. There should be a growth. In 1 Peter 2... Starting in verse one, it says, therefore lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. Growing is part of the Christian experience. And as a church, we should promote growing in the knowledge of the Lord. And unfortunately, and has done a lot of polls on these, Ligonier Ministries does an annual poll that points out the depth of the biblical ignorance within the Christian community. And it is just sad. When you look at people that profess to be Christians, they limited knowledge about the Bible. And I think that I can say that in my lifetime, I have experienced this dramatic change of where when I was a young person, congregation were concerned about knowing the things of God in attending church to know about God in His Word, in His teaching, in His truth. People came Sunday morning. People came Sunday night. We don't have Sunday night service anymore. People came Wednesday night. And there was a purpose to it. It wasn't to get a check. It was, I am coming to learn about God. And people had a clear understanding that that was part of being a Christian to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you grew up in the Baptist faith, we used to have this thing, January Bible study. And in January, congregations all throughout the denomination had one week where we studied a book of the Bible in that week. And as a kid, I remembered that those were very well attended, where people gave up every single night, every single night people got together and they went through January Bible study. And it was a specific purpose to instruct the congregation in the bible and so that they could grow in the grace and knowledge of jesus christ there needs to be a thirst for his word and for his knowledge it was an attribute of the roman church now it's interesting in first peter 2 that verse that i read verses 1 through 2 says therefore by laying aside all malice all deceit hypocrisy Envy and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. John MacArthur said that you cannot separate truth and virtue. You cannot separate truth and virtue. And I think that's a very important point. The more that you and I spend time in the word, the Holy Spirit works in us and we have goodness. We're going to learn more about that in just a moment. But you cannot separate truth in virtue. So, so far as an attribute, a church is a group of people who pursue holiness according to a biblical standard. Let me stress biblical standard. And a church immerses themselves into learning the word of God. Now, let's go to our third attribute. He writes in Romans fifteen fourteen that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. What does the word admonish mean in this context? It means to instruct, to warn, and to advise. When you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is giving Timothy instructions in verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from your childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 16, he describes scripture. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The definition that I just gave for admonishing fits what Paul told Timothy, that scripture is for reproof, for for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is what the word of God does. This is what the word of God does. And here he's exhorting, he's admonishing Timothy, know your word. Hebrews 4.11 says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart." a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, when you and I pick up our word, when we come together congregationally and we study the word, the word and the spirit work together to convict us and move us into goodness, which is one of the attributes of the church, and knowledge, which is one of the attributes of the church. It all centers around the Word of God. I remember on two separate occasions so far in my ministry, I've had disagreements with a couple of people. And I said, well, look, I know that you disagree with me. Let's get out the Bible and let's look at the verses and we'll study those together. I'm not arguing the Bible with you. I'm like, so what you're telling me then is, is that's your opinion and you refuse to look at the word to see if your opinion is wrong. Because that's what we're talking about. There is only one truth. There's only one truth. One time someone, they meant it as a, is something is a bad thing. I took it as a compliment. They said, you know, you're nothing but a Bible thumper. I said, thank you. It's just the truth. Now there's a graceful way to do it, but the church has to stand on the truth. And when we stand on the truth, we develop the attributes of what a church should be. A church is not a building. And I know that sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, we'll say, well, there is where I, what, go to church. We are the church. We are the church. And if you know the history of this church, we have met in every rented facility known in this town. We were always Mill Creek Church. We've been blessed with this wonderful facility but we have always been Mill Creek Church. We are a group of believers that come together and reflect Christ. And reflect Christ. Now, when you start thinking about that in your own individual decisions and the things that you do and the life that you lead, am I reflecting Christ both individually and collectively as a member of Mill Creek Church. That's important. That's important. And then one day he's going to call us all together. And just as Ephesians describes, we all are surrounding his throne. And when we surround his throne, we're completely glorified and we're in his image. You see the story there? Christ didn't shed his blood so that you and I can do what we want to. That's not the purpose of Christianity. The purpose of Christianity is for you and I to be transformed into his image. And that's not when we get to heaven immediately. It starts the moment that you accept Jesus Christ. And collectively, we reflect that. And we should pray that we live our life, that it would glorify God in his transformational power. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we might be a wonderful testimony to our community that we might stand for truth and righteousness, that we might be a witness. We pray, Lord, that people might recognize that you are at work among us, not for our own benefit, but only to give you all the glory. I pray that if someone's listening today that doesn't know you, that they might surrender to you today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash Church. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, MilkCreekChurch.org.